Well, standing at 90 feet tall with 1,320 tons of reinforced Brazilian tile stands Cristo Redentor, Christ the Redeemer. Here overlooking Rio de Janeiro, Brazil stands Jesus in statue form, positioned on a mountain that is uh, one and a half miles above sea level. No tourist ever makes it to Rio without trekking up the Corvado Mountain to see this inspiring and famous monument. The head alone on the statue is nine feet, the wingspan 98 feet wide. It's a spectacle to behold even this morning via drone footage. And beneath this colossal monument live more than six million people who see Jesus in statue form every single day, which makes me wonder if in their regular routines of life and work and school and family and and fun, do they really even see him? Has he just become part of the landscape? I couldn't help notice when you look at the statue that the eyes appear blind. There are no pupils to suggest vision. What kind of redeemer can't see? Eyes that are fixed on the horizon, seemingly unaware of the mass of people at his feet. And if you look down, you'll see Jesus' heart. It's affixed to the outside of the cloak that he is wearing. Looks like a Valentine's card, a simple heart just kind of glued on. But it's also a stone heart. What kind of redeemer has a heart of stone, a heart that's held together not with passion and love, but concrete and mortar, a Jesus with blind eyes and a stony heart? My fear is this morning, that's the kind of Jesus that most people have. No one would dare admit that this is the Jesus that they know and love But I invite you this morning to take a closer look. For some of you, Jesus is merely a good luck charm. He's pocket-sized. He's easily packaged. Maybe you have his picture and you've put it on your wall or you may stick it in your wallet, kind of like insurance. This kind of Jesus, his specialty is just simply to get you out of a jam. You need help and so you pull him out need to have a relationship with him, well, you just keep him in your pocket for when you really need him. Others this morning may have the magic genie Jesus, you know, the kind where you just simply pull out the lamp and you rub it and and he appears and, and there he is to give you all of your hopes and desires, a new job, a better house. The vacation you've always wanted. Your wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently re-enters the lamp when you don't need him or want him around. Maybe others this morning have a golden ticket, Jesus. Kind of the Willy Wonka kind, right? You, you do your part and he does his. You, you check some boxes and you uh, exchange. He, he rewards you with the golden ticket so that you can enter the pearly gates one day. Very few demands, no challenges, 
No need for sacrifice. There's no commitment required. All of these just sightless and heartless redeemers. Redeemers that don't have any power, but that's not the redeemer of the New Testament. Now, we already got a glimpse of of this Jesus this morning. We heard about him and visually got to see an interpretation of John's gospel, chapter uh, 19. It was the word of God being read to us this morning because Jesus was and he is real. Jesus was and he is alive. Yet today in our creed and in our text this morning, we take a closer look at Jesus' death because it was his death that gave him the name Redeemer. Here we are this morning in a series on the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest and most concise summaries of biblical doctrine that the church has. When you and I recited the creed this morning, we joined with the global and the universal church as we professed what we believe. Now, it's important to remember that the Apostles' Creed was intended to be a summary of beliefs, not a comprehensive statement of faith. We also want to be sure in this series that you know we're not preaching the creed, we're preaching the Word of God. The creed simply reflects what we know and believe about God's Word, His source for us, Scripture. Now, when you look at the creed, you'll notice it has much more to say about the Son, Jesus Christ, than anything else, and I would argue rightfully so, because there's no doubt the global influence of this God-man, Jesus. He's the most extraordinary, the most loved, but also hated, the most widely considered person in all of human history. I want you to know more songs have been sung about him more artwork created and painted about him, more books written about him than anyone who has ever lived in the history of the world. In fact, we literally mark time and history because of his life, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Our calendar literally revolves around this man Jesus Christ. And last week, Pastor David got us started by looking at the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God's only Son. And we took a look at the early life of Jesus, starting uh, with his conception by the Holy Spirit and then his birth. And now we get to the section of the Creed this morning where we say together that we believe in Jesus and that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Now we could go this morning to any of the four Gospels to read about the death of Jesus. All of them give a very detailed accounting of Jesus' passion, his last week leading up to his crucifixion. I chose John's gospel because it devotes over half of its time looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus himself says in John 12, 27, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Everything in Jesus' life and ministry, his coming is made clear as he completes his father's mission by dying on the cross. 
So with that in mind, let's look at some truths we see from our text this morning. The first is this, Jesus suffered and was crucified in our place. We saw in John 19 that Jesus suffered at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a very real human being who ruled Palestine as the Roman governor. While it was really the religious, political leadership of the Jews that instigated Jesus' suffering, it was this Gentile politician who had the power and the authority to actually enact it and to put Jesus to death. And Pilate did all of this while aware of the very truth that the person standing in front of him was innocent of any wrongdoing. You see, Pilate, like many leaders, had the courage to lead from his convictions. And even though he tried to wash his hands in water, he would find it was not so easy to remove the stains of the murder of Jesus from those hands. Now, to say that the Romans had perfected punishment would be an understatement. To ensure maximum suffering, scourging preceded crucifixion. Scourging itself was such a painful event that many people died from it without ever even making it to the cross. Jesus' hands would have been chained above his head to a post to expose his back and legs to an executioner's whip maybe better known as a cat of nine tails, which were these series of long leather straps. At the end of some of the straps would be heavy metal uh, balls that would be attached or, or even bone that would have sunk deeply into the shoulders and back and the legs of the victim. And once these hooks had sunk deeply into uh, the flesh that would have been so tenderized, the executioner would then pull back ripping skin and muscle tendons and even bones out of the victim as they would cry out in agony. They would shake violently and bleed heavily. And I remind you this morning, this is what Jesus endured for you. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years prior, told us of this event in chapter 52, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus then had a crown of lengthy thorns that were weaved together and pressed down into his head as the onlookers mocked him and spat upon him, derided him as king of the Jews. A robe that was mocking his divinity was then put upon him. And then Jesus was forced to carry this rough-hewn beam that would serve as the crossbar, likely around 100 pounds, and carry that on his bare back, his traumatized back and shoulders, to the place of his own crucifixion. And despite his young age and good health, after all that he endured, his body on that road would collapse under the weight of that beam. And I remind you, this is what Jesus did for you. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 5,000 BC, but it was perfected by the Romans in the days of Jesus. Now you need to know crucifixion was reserved for the most heinous of criminals. Uh, 
Even the worst Romans were beheaded rather than crucified. But the Roman Empire used crucifixion to demonstrate to all who might be thinking or planning subversive ideas that crucified people were not only expendable, but also deserving of ritualized extermination. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The pain of crucifixion was so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. Excruciating literally means from the cross. Jesus was laid down upon that cross beam and had five to seven inch rough metal spikes driven into some of the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body into his wrists and his feet. Jesus was nailed to that wooden cross when then they lifted it up and dropped it into a prepared hole causing his body to violently shake upon those spikes. In further mockery, the sign was placed above his head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Jesus would then hang upon that cross, laboring to breathe, having to lift his body up upon those nails to grab uh, uh, and gasp for his next breath. Hanging there naked and in shame, his body would continue to go into deeper shock. And again, I remind you, this is what Jesus endured for you. Jesus' crucifixion was certainly a grotesque scene that, uh, that today is even difficult to retell. But again, hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah would prophesy that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces as he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, faith family, among the greatest scandals of the cross is that we as Christ followers call this event good news. What we have seen and what we have heard and what we have read and we say this is good news. But we know that it is the very gospel that we cling to. It's the only means that, that mankind could be spared from sin. Because there the sin of the world was placed upon the sinless Son of God. He took your place. He took my place upon that cross. If you like big theological words, this is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. That what we deserved was put upon Jesus Paul reminds us in Romans that the wages of sin is death, that our sin literally separates us from God. Yet Jesus took our sin. He bridges the chasm that exists between God and man. And this is why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that through me took place on the cross. And so the cross is uh, the universal symbol of our Christian faith. 
It is perplexing that a tool of torture would come to embody a movement of hope. But we see it, don't we? When we see the cross, it's where our Redeemer hung. The cross is where we find forgiveness and hope and life. The second thing we see is that Jesus died so that we could have life. Let's look to the Westminster Larger Catechism to understand the significance of Jesus' death. Question 49 asks, how did Christ humble himself in his death? And the answer, Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath, he laid down his life as an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. Jesus literally died on the cross. He did not faint or swoon. The soldier pierced his side. Blood and water flowed. This gathering of fluid around the membrane of the heart is called pericardial infusion. It comes as a result of the shock of a sustained rapid heartbeat. So John's record not only portrays the redemptive aspect of Jesus' death with the flow of blood, but also the life-imparting aspect that his bride, we, the church, are washed clean by the water of life. In Jesus' death, we see some important truths, and the first being that Jesus' death was for his his enemies. Make no mistake that that God's love is different than natural human love. Because God sent His Son Jesus to love us when we were utterly unlovable. When Jesus died, He died for the ungodly, for sinners, for His enemies. Remember how Paul reminds us how unique this is in Romans chapter 5 when he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare die, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us when we were at our worst. We also see that Jesus' death purchased his people. Jesus' death wasn't just to accomplish the possibility of salvation, but to ransom and rescue and redeem a people for his own possession Jesus' own words from John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing out of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We also see that Jesus' death stood in our place. That Jesus' death was substitutionary. We saw that a a, a bit earlier, but it's worth repeating that Jesus died in our place. He died the death that we should have died, that we certainly deserve to die. He bore the punishment that was justly and rightfully ours. Peter writes, Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because only by his wounds 
can we be healed? We also see that Jesus' death defines love. Jesus' death, I would tell you this morning, wasn't just an act of love. Jesus' death literally brings definition to the word love. His death is the ultimate example and application of what love means. And Jesus calls those who follow him to walk in the same kind of life laying down love. That that would mark us as his followers. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet chooses his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We also see that Jesus' death reconciles us to the Father. Theologically speaking, in Jesus' death, we have justification. That means we are declared right with God. We have propitiation. That means the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus and satisfied in him. The wrath that we deserve put on Jesus. And we have redemption, meaning we have been delivered from sin and death. And these are all the benefits of Christ's death. But they all have one great purpose And that's reconciliation, that we can be brought back into a relationship with our almighty creator, God of the universe, our heavenly father. See, Jesus' death enables us to have a joy-filled relationship with God, which is the highest outcome of the cross. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, "And, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh and by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the great exchange. Our sin for Jesus' righteousness. And that was accomplished on the cross. Jesus' death can best be summed up in his own words it is finished. There's nothing that you and I could do. He did it, and he did it for you. Thirdly, we see that Jesus was buried, but hope was not lost. Jesus died mid-afternoon, and the Sabbath would begin at sunset. You'll remember that the Jewish law did not allow for any work on the Sabbath, which meant uh, they could not bury the body of Jesus that night or the next day. And so Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate, hoping to bury the body in time. Joseph, even being a Pharisee, shows amazing courage by going to ask for Jesus' body. Now, you'll remember that Pilate was actually surprised that Jesus was already dead, and he asked his centurion and uh, if it were so, and, and because the centurion confirmed this, he gives the body of Jesus to Joseph. And Joseph buys some uh, linen cloth, and he takes down the body, he wraps it in that very linen, and he places it in a tomb cut out of a rock. And then you'll remember a giant stone was rolled at the entrance of the tomb. 
We were told that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw Jesus, his now dead body, fully shrouded, laying in that tomb. The stone was rolled in front, the Roman seal placed upon it, Roman soldiers placed there to guard the body. It would appear all hope was lost, that death had won. Jesus' body in the tomb. For centuries, Christians have called the day between Jesus' death and resurrection Holy Saturday. You see, God the Father did not raise Jesus directly from the cross. There was a day between. There was a pause. At the center of the earliest summary of the gospel, there sits the the silence of Holy Saturday. What would come next? What would take place? Is it over? Did death win? Was Jesus gone? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. Now, Jesus predicted this day when he said in Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So after Jesus' human body expired on the cross, his human soul entered the state of the departed spirits. Again, our catechism is very helpful for us to understand what took place after Jesus' death on the cross. Question 50 asks, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And the answer, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. Arguably one of the most difficult phrases of the creed to understand what is being spoken of here. Some of the earliest forms of the creed did not have this phrase in there, seemingly added later, but the reformers kept it. Our own confession kept it. And so we need to understand what is being said here. Now, Jesus remained under the power of death. Again, he did not get rescued or resurrected immediately. His body lay in Joseph's tomb. His human soul, therefore, was in the realm of the dead. And for us to grasp the full significance of Jesus' burial, we must consider its fearfulness. It's certainly a morbid exercise for any of us to contemplate our own body laying lifeless, shut up in a coffin, placed in the ground, and covered in dirt. That brings great fear to our hearts and minds. Death isn't something we want to think about or process. We want to push that thought as far away as we can. Yet if Jesus is to take away our fear of death, He had to stare down death, face it, and defeat it. This is likely why the Apostles' Creed added the phrase, he descended into hell. 
Now, the English word for hell originally referred to a state of torment, uh, not to the state of torment for the damned as we would understand hell. That would be Gehenna in the Greek. But here, hell would be a place of the dead, Hades in Greek or Sheol in Hebrew, all of which have this meaning of a covered place or a hidden place. Scripture talks about uh, this word in many places. It describes it in Jonah as under the deepest sea, or in Deuteronomy as the heart of the earth, or it's also described in Romans as the abyss, or even in Psalms as the pit. And all of these scriptural descriptions are written as poetic allusions because for us as the living, we can only speculate about the unseen realm which, by the way, makes death even all the more dreadful to us because there is such uncertainty, things that we don't fully see and know and can get our minds around. Now, one of the great reformers, John Calvin, believed that Christ literally descended into hell while he was on the cross, and that was because the wrath of God was laid upon him when the sin of the world was placed upon him. And so if this were John Calvin speaking the creed, he would say that we believe in Jesus, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, descended into hell, was dead, and then was buried. And that's a take I can understand. There's certainly significant spiritual implications to the sin that would separate God from his father. In fact, the only time that Jesus doesn't refer to God as Father from the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, somehow for the first time in the history of the universe, there is this separation between God the Father and God the Son in the form of God the Father turning his back on his Son. The agony of separation from the Father settles into the Son And for the first time ever, he feels what he was never meant to feel, arguably what we were never meant to feel, separation from God. This could very easily be the hell that Christ experiences, this spiritual descent, if you will, into hell because of sin. There's lots of other thoughts Theologians have gone many different directions, but the point of the phrase of understanding that Jesus descended into hell wasn't that he went to a place where he was tormented, but that he died. He literally died for us. And when Jesus descended, he made the darkness his own. Death captured Jesus as he entered it fully. What makes Jesus' entry into Hades important for us is simply the fact that we can now face death, knowing that when our time comes, we won't face it alone. Jesus has been there. He's been there before us, and so now He can see us through. So we can now hold fast to the truth of Psalm 139 that even darkness is not dark to you. Just as Jesus took our sins, 
So he has taken our lonely dying as his own. I would ask you this morning, do you realize that this life isn't all that there is? Surely you found some successes, you've had happiness, but your life has also been, I'm sure, marked with pain, sadness, unfulfillment. Yet some of us in here are so desperate to make this life work, to just squeeze it and get all that we can out of it. We act and live like this life is the whole story. But do you realize this morning that if you're in Christ, this life is only the first chapter? Death was just a doorway for Jesus Christ. Sure, it's dark now, but there's more to the story. But I would also want you to know that for those of us that are in Christ, death is just a doorway as well. You know what's really sad? For those that find themselves without Christ, this life is their best chapter. This is as good as it gets if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the opposite of true is true for those of us in Jesus Christ. This life is as bad as it could possibly get. This first chapter is actually the worst chapter. It only gets better from here. So church, let's not be afraid to look intently at the cross, at Jesus' suffering and death and burial, because it's where we find life and where we find hope.